Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Hi everybody, um, we might get started. Um, welcome to this evening's event. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the topic is, what should the federal government do on retirement incomes? My name is Joanna Mather and I write for the Australian Financial Review and I was just mentioning that I've written about franking credits for three years and I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Um, um, but I guess, which means we're having a different discussion to what I guess I thought or we thought we were going to be having, sort of given given the surprise result. But nevertheless, lots to talk about in the space. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I would like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and future and pay my respects to all Aboriginal people here today, wherever you may come from. Uh, Australia's retirement income system faces some big challenges, as, as you all know. Uh, the Grattan Institute's Money in Retirement report showed that while most Australians can expect the same or a higher living standard in retirement as when working, retirees who rent uh, face a lot of challenges and are at growing risk of poverty. The Productivity Commission looked very closely at superannuation, uh, particularly multiple accounts and fees. Um, it, it, uh, and we've got some high fees. Uh, I think most people will agree with that. Um, the PC also identified a long tail of underperforming funds and, uh, and a lack of competition within the default system. Uh, and while spending on pensions is low, the Commonwealth Government gives up about $35 billion a year, or 1.9% of GDP, in super tax breaks, so says the Grattan Institute. Um, but listen, let me introduce Brendan Coates. Um, he is the Australian Perspective Fellow at the Grattan Institute. His research focuses on tax reform, economic and budget policy, retirement incomes, super, housing, transport, infrastructure and cities. It's a lot. And I'll be writing less about franking credits too. Yes. <laughs> um, prior to being at Grattan, Brendan worked as a macro financial economist with the World Bank in Indonesia and Latin America. And prior to that, he undertook a number of roles within the Australian Treasury. He holds a Master's of International Development Economics from ANU and a Bachelor of Commerce and Arts from the University of Melbourne. So we're first going to get Brendan to sort of take the temperature of the sector or, or of the issue um, and tell us, you know, what's working um, and where there are some problems. I think he's got some slides as well. Well, actually, I'd like to start by just saying that, you know, as Joe mentioned, this election was probably a bit of a surprise to many. Um, you know, it was a surprise to us as anyone else. We were following the same polls. We were looking at the same information. And I think... What was striking as we, I was preparing for tonight and going through, you know, our work and what we might think about we do going forward is that, you know, the government is the same government. Um, it may not be the government that a lot of Australians thought they were going to get today, but the reality is that a lot of the challenges are actually pretty similar. So the challenges facing this government would are not that different from the challenges facing what would have been a shortened Labor government. And in this instance, um, what might change a little bit is just which of those things are probably more on the table and which ones are perhaps a little bit less on the table, um, which things the government's going to address and which ones they're not. And, you know, this is one of those ones where 
some doors close and others open. And it's not as if, I think, in this space, the, the government's going to be able to get away without doing much in this, this area. There's going to have to be some reforms uh, in because there's some big challenges. Uh, but just as, as Joe asked, I think where we should start is kind of like, okay, what does the system look like? Um, you know, we did a piece of work just at the start of the federal election that said, um, which is called the Commonwealth Orange Book, where we essentially replicate the red book, blue book approach that the incoming governments, uh, the, the, the bureaucracy rights for the incoming government. And what that showed is that, you know, in, in quite a few areas, the system's actually pretty good. So on adequacy... You know, compared to a lot of countries, we're actually doing pretty well, particularly for low and middle income earners. Uh, le- a little bit less so for high income earners, but we can talk about that. Um, poverty is kind of a bit lower than what we often think. So the typical numbers that say that, you know, one quarter of older Australians are in poverty tend to mislead a bit because they don't include housing and they don't treat um, income uh, from various assets as well as they probably should. Um, and also the system's pretty cheap. So in terms of the public pension in particular, or especially, you know, we're spending three point. We're spending four percent of GDP on public pensions today. You know, as you can see up here, that's pretty low compared to a lot of countries across the OECD. And what's really interesting is, if you look ahead to twenty sixty, based on the OECD numbers, we're actually looking at spending less. We're going to the spending on pensions as a share of GDP is going to fall, and you know that does make us a bit of an outlier. Obviously, there's the IGR. Uh, projection from 2015 IGR, which is a bit higher. But the numbers are, you know, you're comparing us across lots of countries. We're actually pretty low. But there are some challenges. And, you know, one of the big ones is that the system's not working well for everyone. So, you know, our work, um, which we'll talk about tonight, said money in, in money and retirement report said, on average, most Australians are doing pretty well um, through the retirement system. But there's problems for those that rent. Um, and there's problems for, for there's a gender equality problem as well. So women are doing less well than men through the system. Um, and probably the biggest one though is that we're spending a lot of money on super fees. So we're spending more, at least on the numbers we can get within the OECD, than most other countries on fees. And so those costs look pretty high. It's about two percent of GDP, thirty thirty billion dollars. You know, that's a lot of money. And is that really the best we can do? And I think that's probably the big challenge for the government going forward. There are people I know in this room who possibly wouldn't agree with the fact that retirees are doing okay. Um, What about people in the future? Well, let's start with retirees today. And what's, I think, quite surprising, when we so we did this piece of work last year, and I expected to find, my prior, was that retirees today weren't doing that well. I had signed up to the idea, you know, as a lot of people have, that if you didn't have access to superannuation throughout your your working life, but the people who were most going to struggle in retirement were the group that were in retirement today. And what's really striking when you look through the numbers is that, you know, these are broad trends. There's certainly people who are in poverty in retirement, but the average person in retirement is more comfortable with their financial position than the average person that's working, whether they're older and have kids, you know, they're empty nesters, so the kids have left home. It's no coincidence that the more kids you have, the uh, lower down you feel on your self-assessed financial comfort, um, and obviously single parents at the bottom. So consistently for a large number of years, retirees today say they're feeling better than most. They're doing better on that, not just their lifestyle, not just how happy they are, but just on the particular question of how financially comfortable you are, they seem to do okay. The other point is that Older Australians 
are likely to be in some of them are likely to be in financial stress. So things like can't afford to pay um, a bill on time, they can't afford to heat their home, they're skipping meals, these sort of things. That's certainly something that's happening. But what's striking is that those that are over 65, unsurprisingly, actually, who don't have any pension, their chances of experiencing those stresses are pretty low. Those that have the pension, it's higher. But what's really interesting is that rates of financial stress amongst working-age Australians who are in the paid workforce are higher than amongst pensioners, including for both those that own their own homes and those that don't. So, you know, this is two pieces of evidence. One says that retirees say they're doing okay. The other piece of evidence says, you know, retirees are less likely to experience the kinds of deep stresses that, you know, we think of as really bad in society. This is not to say that there's no pensioners that are experiencing stress, but the big predictor is not, you know, whether you're old, it's whether you rent. And that seems to be where the problems really are. And then if we look at how well they're doing today compared to what they were in the past... Um, you know, older Australians tend to actually have replacement rates of their pre-retirement income that are, you know, above what you'd expect. So they, on average, are tending to have, even after you account for inflation, they've got higher incomes in retirement today across the income distribution than what they did when they were working 20 years ago. Now, this is quite surprising. You know, this, is, this was the, the slide of all of our work that really surprised me more than anything else. Because what it says is that there's not a problem in the sense of older Australians who didn't get super aren't doing worse. You know, that, that's what I think is quite surprising here because you expect that the average person should have a replacement rate of about 70% of their pre-retirement income, um, higher at the bottom, perhaps a little bit lower at the top, and that's kind of where they all are. That's, that's what they're coming out with. But So why do your numbers look so different to what we hear about often? Why did hundreds of people stand up at franking and credit inquiries and sort of say that they were feeling really bad? Well, to be fair, those that were showing up at franking credit inquiries were probably in this part of the distribution. Uh, To be fair, because of the pensioner guarantee, um, that they weren't affected by Labor's policy um, if they were um, receiving any pension. But I think that on this one, the reason why the numbers look like that is because... We actually went and asked people how they were doing today, and I think we're the first people in Australia that have done this. So most of the modelling says, based on what you earn and what you save through super and your contributions, anything outside, this is what you're going to end up looking like, and it looks pretty bleak. But what's striking is when you actually look at how people are doing in retirement today, they're meeting the kind of benchmarks you'd want. And the big reason, I think, Joe, why this is the case is because the pension is indexed to wages, and for this group the pension is a larger share of their income. So the fact that the pension's grown in real terms over time because it's a benchmark to wages, where we're just measuring how much disposable, what's the income that you have and what can it purchase for you today compared to what that income could have purchased for you 20 years ago, that's the reason why they're doing so well. And also at the top end, because they, they might not have had as much super, but they still saved. They still saved outside. So let's, but what about the falling home ownership um, conundrum? So you've talked about the fact that renters are worse off. Won't we have more of those people in the future? Sure. So if we look at those that own their own homes, it's falling and it's falling pretty sharply. So home ownership's falling um, a lot amongst younger Australians. So home ownership hasn't changed that much at the bottom end. You know, the numbers still look pretty good. 
sorry, no, the, the top end numbers still look pretty good. The share of the people that own their own homes has only fallen a little bit of 25 to 34 year olds that are wealthy. But amongst the poorest 20% of 25 to 34-year-olds, it's fallen a lot. So we used to be in a society where home ownership was pretty constant across the income distribution. And now we're not. Home ownership's falling really rapidly amongst the poorest 40% of each age group. And over time, that's going to lead to more people who are potentially going to struggle in society. But before we get to that, I think we should talk about actually what happens for retirees in future. So, our numbers, this is our model, basically. So, we've looked at people in the past, which is what this chart is, and then we look at people in future. And I think what's really interesting here is that most people in future can expect the kind of income, the income standard, that we'd hope them to get. They get to that 70% number. And the reason we'd pick a number like 70% is because you tend not to pay for your home in retirement as much unless you're renting, and that's the group that's going to struggle. You tend to have some work-related expenses that you get rid of because you're no longer you know, having to commute as much, there's no longer childcare, there's no longer all these sorts of things. And you tend to substitute eating out for eating more at home and things like that. So you transfer your consumption from things that cost you money to, to the sorts of things that you do in your leisure time. So what we're finding when we run our modelling forward is that someone who's 30 today can expect across the income distribution to hit a replacement rate of 70%. The only group that's not going to is sort of the 90th percentile. And we, our view is that, look, up until about the 80th percentile, you want to make sure that uh, people are hitting that 70% benchmark. And once you're above that, you're probably not as worried. Because if someone at the 90th percentile, keeping in mind the 80th percentile is someone on 1.5 times average earnings, so they're earning 120 k a year during their working life. Someone who's above that, you're talking $150,000, $200,000. If they've got a replacement rate of about 50%, 60% of their pre-retirement disposable income, that's probably okay. Um, the other thing that's worth talking about is why our numbers are so different. So this is your question before, Joe. So what's different between our numbers and everyone else's? Because the standard story, right, is that you say that most, that we hear this, that most Australians are going to struggle, that their retirement incomes are not going to be adequate. And there's two. The first one is the ask for comfortable standard is often used as the metric. So who in the room knows what the ask for comfortable standard is? Who in the room has heard our critique of the ask for comfortable standard? That's less progress than I was hoping for, but the reality is that the ask for standard, there's two standards, um, and I acknowledge Ross is here tonight, and he's uh, one of the people that's behind that standard, and I'm sure I'll get a question on this during the uh, during the question time. But the fact is that there are two standards. There's a modest standard, which is set at about the living standard of the average retiree today, the median. And then there's the living standard, the comfortable one, which was originally called the comfortably affluent standard. And it was set at about the living standard of the 80th percentile of retirees. And so it's unsurprising when you run that kind of standard, you find, you know, the difference between all the treasury numbers, which is what these first two are, tend to use replacement rates, they, and they tend to come out with numbers that are pretty sensible. Once you're getting into some of the industry work, we're finding that they're using the ask for comfortable standard as the benchmark, and it shouldn't surprise anyone that if you set a debt benchmark that's appropriate for the top 25% of Australians, that most Australians won't hit that standard in retirement. The second thing, though, and this is the most important one, is that there's an assumption about what happens in retirement. So you should your income in retirement grow in line with CPI, so you continue to have the same purchasing power, 
or should it grow in line with wages? You know, should your living standard grow through your retirement? And this is probably the most important assumption in this entire debate because what a lot of the industry modelling is doing is assuming that your income, your expenditure needs, sorry, when you're 90, are about 22% higher than what they were when they're 70. So you need more money as a 90-year-old to have the same living standard as what you did when you are 70. When we know from the literature and from our own data analysis that the median 90-year-old has spending about 15% lower, that spending falls. And the difference between these two retirement standards is enormous because if you assume that you need 22% more at age 90 than 70, that's a hell of a lot more super that you have to save and have in retirement. Whereas we take the, the middle between these two things and say, okay, well, what we should be aiming for is having the same living standard at age 90 as what you have at age 70 and that that's a sort of safe bet, noting that most of the data is going the other way. And why is spending falling? Well, it seems to be falling because food goes down, you spend less on food, you spend less on transport because you become less mobile, basically from the age of 75 onwards, it seems. Your recreation goes down a bit and your furnishings fall. So look, I go into my grandparents' house and you know the furnishings haven't changed for 20 years. Now, that may be just me, but it seems to be a trend that we see across different groups. And interestingly, spending on medical services doesn't go up. So the reason being that even though they're consuming an enormous amount of healthcare, and if we think of the people in this room, you know, people who tend to come to Grattan events who come to the CBD tend to be wealthier than average. If you think about people who are older in your own life, the chances are a lot of them aren't going to be the median person. They're going to be the person with private health insurance and the person who's paying more out-of-pocket costs because they're at the, the higher end of the distribution. But the median person is only spending two grand a year on um, healthcare in retirement at age, you know, by the time they're hitting age 84 to 80 to 84, compared to when they were 65, um, because government's filling in like ten dollars to $15,000 a year of health expenditure for them. So this is the big reason why our numbers are so different to everyone else's. If it's burning, go ahead. Well, the fuel number sort of goes up a tiny, tiny amount, but this is kind of like, you know, you're spending money on public transport and the like, and that's clearly going down. Mm. So fuel will include heating as well. Righto. Um, Now, this will make Brendan popular as well, because we're going to talk about the fact that both sides of politics are uh, committed to raising uh, super guarantee to 12%. Um, Grattan doesn't agree, and I have it on good authority that PJK doesn't like him talking about this. Um, but can you explain to us why you reckon it doesn't need to go to 12%? Well, the very simple answer is if people are saving enough already to meet the kind of retirement income standard that we want people to have, you know, to meet the kind of benchmarks. Super doesn't come from nowhere. There's no magic pudding. So... It's about a trade-off between your consumption during your working life and your consumption during retirement. And so if you have more during retirement, it does mean less during your working life. And so we know that super comes out of wages. That's what all the... I'll just jump ahead a couple. That's what all the empirical evidence tends to show. Now, this empirical evidence isn't perfect, but what's striking is it's all running in the one direction. So we know super's coming from wages, you know, 
No, someone as, uh, as high profile as Paul Keating has said as much in the past. The cost of superannuation was never borne by employees. It was absorbed into the overall wage cost. We have similar statements from Bill Shorten. Um, Paul Keating has obviously changed his mind. Uh, it's unfortunately says daily rather than coats here. Uh, so daily says that if you get super, you'll forgo a wage increase. It's an outrageous claim without any basis. In fact, it's basically a nasty polemic. So he's clearly changed his mind. But I think what's really important is that everyone else who's in this space, whether it was the Henry Tax Review, the Parliamentary Budget Office, even the Fair Work Commission when it um, increased minimum wages said it was increasing them by less because compulsory super was going up. So what we tend to know is it comes out of wages. The other part of it, though, is what are you getting in return in retirement? And what we tend to be getting is not a lot. So if you're a low-income earner, you've already got a replacement rate north of 100%. You're at the bottom. What you then get out of super is a bit more money, but you're already saving for a higher living standard in retirement than what you had while you're working. And that's, look, I've got family members who are in this extended family that are in this position. You know, people whose living standard went up by 30% when they got on the pension. It's, I think it's hard sometimes for us to imagine, but that is the, the life that a lot of people do lead in Australia. Then in the middle, it doesn't change very much. So your retirement income, even though you're putting more into super, does not go up over your retirement. And there's two reasons for that. One, super wages, sorry, pensions are indexed to wages. Super going up suppresses wages growth. It will reduce the real value of the pension compared to where it otherwise would be. So the person that loses most from the from super going up is the pensioners of Australia today because they'll get less pension out of it. That's the red, like the, the red bar there. And then the second part of it is that we obviously have other parts of the retirement income system rather than super. And so if that goes up, then that means if super goes up, then uh, you get a lot of it clawed back by the pension. So the net effect is it comes out of your wages. It helps those at the very bottom have a high retirement income, but they've already got very high retirement incomes compared to what they have while working. That doesn't mean they're not in poverty. It just means that if you're going to help them, it probably shouldn't come out of their own pockets. You then have middle income earners who don't gain anything and you have a bunch of additional income at the top really that's coming from people who no longer don't get the pension anyway, who save more and get some extra super tax breaks along the way. And all the while, this is going to cost us $2 billion a year. And what I think is really striking, Joe, about super is that the, the natural understanding is that super saves the budget money. But the numbers that we have from Treasury... Uh, that it doesn't. So the long-term budgetary costs of super tax breaks from having a 12% super guarantee are larger than the pension savings today, out to 2050, probably to 2060, and then it's a long time before you're staying to, to get that back. So to the question I would ask is why would you want to do this? So what do we do, stay at 9.5 or even pull it down? So we're not in the world where we want to cut it. So I know there are some people that use our analysis and say, see... Super should be at zero. Now, there is a question you could have, like back 30 years ago, is this the path best travelled? You know, I could think of other options that may have, in fact, been better for Australia. That could have been the case, but they're now off the table. The point is that compulsory super has raised retirement income. So going from zero to nine and a half makes a lot of sense. You get people to save for their own retirement. It materially boosts living stand, retirement living standards for low and middle income earners and for the top end. Um, because they save money that they wouldn't have otherwise saved because there's a bit of behavioural biases, people won't save enough. But has it saved the budget any money? Not really. Do you think there's still a debate to be had about tax concessions on super or is that finished now? 
Look, I think there's still a clear debate to be had. Um, the reason why the budgetary costs of super are so large is because the tax breaks. So it's taking money that otherwise would have been taxed as wages in someone's pockets at full marginal rates of personal income tax. Instead, it's being taxed at 15% as contributions or 30% at the top end if you're subject to Div 293 tax. Now, the reality is that that conversation is probably a bit less likely under this government than what it would have been if there'd been a Labor government. Uh, Labor was certainly committed to doing a bit more on super tax breaks. You know, we think you could go a lot further because the basic principle of super and tax should be if the objective of super, as the current government says, has said it is, is to supplement or substitute for the age pension, provide income in retirement to supplement or substitute for the age pension, why are you giving tax breaks to people who would never get on the pension in the first place? Now, if there's any tax economists in the room, there's obviously a debate to be had about what's the optimal taxation of savings. I'm very happy to have that debate. Um, but... You know, the, the the question about should we be giving this money to, to people who are never going to save or never going to end up on the pension, you know, is a genuine question to ask in terms of, you know, is this the best way to help people in the retirement income system? Speaking of which, I don't think they've legislated the objective of super, so you're uh, assuming uh, they should do that, right? Yeah, I think they should, but I think it should be broader. I think it should be an objective for the retirement income system. Yeah. You know, the way to do this I is to have a review, like to actually work out what the purposes of the system is, as the Productivity Commission recommended, and then see where we go from there. So a retirement incomes review. Well, this is what the Productivity Commission recommended. I think it would be a good idea because I think what we've had is supers run off as sort of the predominant form of retirement income policy in Australia, but we have this thing called the age pension that's worth a lot more money. Um, we don't know what yardstick we're aiming for in terms of adequacy. You know, are we aiming for um, a 70% replacement rate? Are we aiming for a budget standard, whether it's ASFA or something else? Um, we don't know how to balance those trade-offs. And the, the value of going down that path is that you then can look at using the right part of the system to solve problems. So the part that super does, which is about helping really middle-income earners, it should be, to save more, that can do its job. And then you can use the pension or other things to help those at the bottom. So what... If you could lay out the Morrison government's agenda, what would it be? What would it look like in, in super or retirement income? Sorry. Well, look, so the big thing I think is they've got a problem where the economy is slowing. Wages have not moved for quite a long time. Um, they need to have something that demonstrates improvements in living standards. It's hard to do productivity enhancing reform. So that's, but, and that takes time. But does it make sense to take another half percent out of, of out of our workers' pockets each year over the course of this legislative increase that's guaranteed a 12% when they're not getting wage rises in the first place? So that is something I think they should seriously look at. And it's probably, if to be frank, it's more likely to happen under a coalition government than ever it was under, would have happened under a Labor government. But the area that we haven't talked about tonight that's probably really important is super fees because that is the area where the costs are really large in the system. And, you know, we're spending a lot of money and it's probably where we do need to, to fix things up. So, so what is the problem there? Why, why are fees so high? So, well, first of all, how high are fees? It's $30 billion, which is more than we're spending on energy. Now, we're spending more on superannuation fees than we are on energy. And if you said to someone, let's create a national um, body like the Future Fund that's going to manage super and you're going to give it $30 billion a year, you, 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 it would seem crazy that you would do that sort of thing. But the issues are really, as the PC set them out, you know, there's a lack of 
there's a lot of funds, there's lots of multiple accounts, there's a long tail of underperforming funds. And I think the simple fact is we haven't been able to get uh, competition and people in the superannuation sector, despite having a proliferation of funds, because people aren't in a place where they make decent choices. So people are defaulted into funds that aren't good. Uh, other people uh, have multiple funds where they're having fees and insurance drained on those multiple accounts, although the government has done some things to fix that. And so we're spending probably, you know, it's $30 billion today. You know, how much could you take off it? It could be $5 billion, It could be more. And I think, you know, this government will probably have to deal with the Productivity Commission's recommendations along those lines, including the best in show and including whether super should sit within the industrial relations system and how what sort of quality filter needs to be applied to the default system particularly because that's where people are being tipped into account they don't have sort of they're, they're not taking much interest what do you think needs hap- needs to happen there so we we think that the productivity commission recommendation is a good one so the idea of best take, in show you mean so best in show so the idea is you know you take um, you change the default system by taking um, defaults out of the awards process um, you put it with a expert panel that chooses 10 funds on the basis of performance and other criteria that you might want to come up with. Um, then when you go as a, someone who's defaulted getting a fund for the first time, you basically get a drop-down list of these 10 funds and it's randomised and you pick one. And the point here, and I think the genius of what the Productivity Commission recommended is that you're never going to get decent competition amongst individual superannuation account holders choosing funds. Retirement's too far into the future. It's 40 years away. The overwhelming um, emotion that people have when they think of retirement is fear. And so when what happens when you're fearful of something? You put it off. You don't think about it. You know, there's some evidence to suggest that when people actually choose a fund actively, they make a worse choice than the default. So, you know, we've gone down the path of saying, here's a product disclosure statement, go choose a fund if you want to, otherwise here's your default. And the, I think the PC showed that a bunch of people are in defaults um, that don't work very well for them. And what the, PC, what the PC recommendation would do is take that decision into the hand, where people are just making a default, are defaulting in, take that decision and put it in the hands of people that have the time and the resources to work out what might work well. And it would certainly be better than the status quo. Should we open it up to some questions or? Sure. Yeah. Does your modelling include the millennial trend of things like the increase in gig working, uh, Ubers and uh, shift work? Does it include the, the, the desire to go and live in London or New York, one of those transfer with a multinational for some, sometimes for up to five or ten years, uh, and therefore they're not earning incomes in Australia? Well, so, okay, I'll take... Those sort of changes to the workforce? Yeah, so in short, our modelling... So if someone's low income in our model, that's because they're working part-time. So the 10th percentile of the income distribution here is someone working part-time on the minimum wage, three days a week. 20th percentile is someone who's working on the minimum wage. So one of the things that we do in the modelling exercise that we do is we... So we take what you people earn in the taxation statistics across the earnings distribution. Now, there are some people who are not in this at all. So anyone who's not in the workforce at all is not going to be in these numbers. But the reality is that group is not going to benefit from super. They're going to end up on the full pension, and that's the start and end of their retirement income story. 
So in terms of has it ca- is it capturing people here? Yeah, it is. Like so, the you're not getting to full time wages until you're getting up to the thirtieth, fortieth percentile of the earnings distribution because so many Australians work part time. And so, to the extent your other question, you know, if you go and spend time overseas, well, you're earning an income when you're there. You've probably got some contributory arrangement with your other city. You're talking about a minority of people who are doing that and coming back. But, you know, I did that. I went and worked for the World Bank in Indonesia. You know, I had to put money into a pension fund for a period and then I came back and transferred it back into my Australian superannuation account. Brendan, can we go back to your the um, 12% super guarantee slide? The... Going, the wrong, going the right way. Sorry if you got dizzy. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, that you don't like that because, you know, it nets out, but I reckon that's pretty attractive that you've got people on pretty much the same replacement rate, true, so they're not getting any extra income, but now they're paying for their own retirement. It's no longer a system where we're compulsorily taking money from the taxpayer and giving it to another bunch of people. And that seems something that the Australian electorate repeatedly votes in favour of, and it seems to have very desirable incentive effects in labour supply. So I think that... That, to me, looks like a really good outcome. Maybe, Peter, maybe we have a different definition of success in this instance. Um, you know, there is some value in people being able to contribute to their own retirement, you know, and we say that. that's why the super guarantee shouldn't be zero. Um, but what you're talking about is people who are putting away... You, let's think about what this chart actually shows. You've got a bunch of people who are putting more money away, so they're being compelled to save, at a point when they're already on our numbers and the numbers of those and some others say they're already saving enough to be a, to, to breach the principle of lifetime consumption smoothing. They're saving more than they should. You know, anyone in the bottom 60 to 70% is in that story. They're putting money into super. They get nothing out of it in terms of extra retirement income, but it still costs us $2 billion a year. So where's all the extra money going? It's basically a way of recycling people's wage contributions, take away their pension entitlement, and recycle it to extra tax breaks for high-income earners. Now, you know, we don't take a view about what the optimal distribution of income is, but in terms of the functioning of a retirement income system, that seems pretty strange to me. But I think we've been talking about this on and off for about a year, and I suspect that the conversation is going to continue. Does any other system look exactly the same as that elsewhere in the world? Well, you're, exactly, but, you know. well the, the unique thing about Australia's system is having a means-tested age pension. So by having a system like that, where you then got to taper away the support, it does have the effect of pushing people down. As, as, they, as they save more, it does take away some of their pension. You know, and that's, that, the, that effect, as I understand it, is, high, is a bit bigger in Australia than other countries. Do you think there are more changes needed to the pension? The big change to the pension is probably the exactly this taper rate. So that's one of the things that we recommend in our in our work is, you know, you've got two billion to two and a half billion on super super guarantee um, for the government. That's how much it costs them in the budget once you get to twelve percent each year. Well, a much better way to help middle income earners with their retirement income would be to reduce this taper rate, partly unwind the changes that were put in place by the. Uh, the um, when Morrison was social services minister, he took it from a dollar fifty um, of pension withdrawal for every, every fortnight for every thousand dollars of assets to three dollars. We think the number should move back to two dollars twenty-five, 
that would boost retirement incomes for the middle. I think I have a slide on that. So this is showing all the different options. This is what happens to their retirement income in future for someone who's a future retiree, they're working today. This is just, is it positive or negative uh, for their retirement incomes today? And this is the impact on the budget. So the SG is $2 billion a year net cost. If you did that where you change the age pension asset test taper, you would get, it will only cost you $750 million and you get a big boost to the retirement incomes in the middle. And yeah, you do get a bit of a boost to the top at the 80th percentile, but not much above that. Any other questions? Sir? My son's, sorry. Anthony Asher. Um, uh, University of South Wales. On my son's behalf, I'd make the point that for a 35-year-old that hasn't yet got their house, the 12% is an absolute outrage. Um, but that's, that's my point. <laughs> um, I, th- I find it interesting. You talk about the 30 billion costs, and then you talk about duplicate accounts. Now, on my calculation, the marginal cost of a duplicate account is probably the order of $10 a year. So $10 million duplicate accounts times $10 is $100 million out of $30 billion. I think we're totally in the wrong ballgame here. The costs of the system are not related to marginal costs of maintaining additional accounts. Now, even if I'm wrong by a factor of 10, you're still it's a very small proportion of the actual costs. The costs are in investments and in the profitability of the um, of, of, of the of the large banks that take a fair cut. And I think I think the PC is entirely misdirected in its approach. Look, I think so. We could we could debate about what the optimal cost is. What's not the optimal cost? What the actual cost of the accounts? I understand the PC said the number was a bit big, quite a bit bigger than ten dollars. Um, you know, and you're saying even if it's ten times higher, it's not that big. So it might be a, a billion or a few hundred million or whatnot. Um, I think the point to keep in mind is we are spending thirty billion, right? And so, so say if you're right, then okay. Well, then where are the extra costs? Well, the average fund is probably charging higher fees than it probably should, and a lot of fun, the funds at the at the fat tail are, are charging very high fees. You know, so multiple accounts are something we may well have dealt with to a degree through some of the reforms that have gone through um, under the coalition, um, but there's certainly still a lot of work to be done to fix fees across the system. And on your the, the point of your, your of your of your son, I hundred percent agree. It's um more soup is not going to make that act of getting home easier. It's going to make it harder. Excuse me, I've got a professor here so I'm gonna can I ask you a question? What do you think about best in show? I think bizarre. Um no, I, I, it, what it'll do is it, 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 it'll be political. As I said in my submission to the PC, it's, um, it, it'll be a political exercise to get onto that top 10. And so you've got a, probably 100 or 200, 150 funds that are really competitive now, and you'll be basically knocking 140 of them out of the, out of the system. And I think that's, that's not a good way of creating comp- competition and choice. Anybody else want to uh, have a Ross? Uh, Ross Clare from ASFA. Uh, I normally don't get out and about doing much defence of the ASFA comfortable standard, but it has been mentioned in my role in it, so just this time I might make an exception. And uh, I, I think one of the problems for the Grattan analysis is that people don't think the age pension is really generous. And the fact that it's adjusted in line with wages shows that we don't condemn people to live 
at a standard of living of decades earlier. So there's a real reason it's adjusted by wages and why appropriate modelling also will use a, a wages deflator to uh, make sure that retirees share uh, community increases in living standards. And I think also a lot of your figures on expenditure are constrained by income and assets, and it's showing the failures of the past. A lot of 90-year-old women, and there's more women than men in that age group, have very little in the way of assets and income other than the age pension, and they're constrained by that. So saying your measure of success is to replicate the failures of the past completely misunderstands the nature of why compulsory superannuation was introduced. When it was introduced, we had a, a bipolar system of a lot of people on the age pension and not much more, and a few people like you, Brendan, who have worked in for international organisations, Commonwealth Treasury, Grattan, where my reckoning on the average salary and the tax breaks that your organisation receive as a deductible uh, tax-exempt organisation. Uh, you know, it, I, I think the perspective of quite a few analysts who have come out of the favoured uh, superannuation incomes to judge the age pension as overly generous because it lifts people just above poverty uh, you know, I, I think it's a misinterpretation of the data. And so, most people so, do pref do uh, aspire to the ask for comfortable. Not everyone will get there, and ask for doesn't say everyone can or should. But rather than 20%, and again, getting back to that figure, when we set it, it was aspirational. We didn't want to re repeat the failures of the past. Compulsory super was introduced to improve things, not just replicate the past. Anyway, that's my little so, rant for the evening. So thank you, Ross. That. So there was, a, there was quite a bit in that, so I might take just a moment to, to respond. Um, so first of all, the average retiree is spending less at age 90 than age 70. They're also saving. So they're saving money through their retirement. The median pensioner... He has ninety percent. Has is either say has as much left at the end, or is just drawing down a tiny little bit of their retirement savings. You know, ten years after we first look at them, on our numbers, the average retiree wealth goes up through their retirement years. So they're not. It's not because they don't have money. Although there's certainly people at the bottom who that's true, uh, but those people have a replacement rate of one hundred and forty percent of their pre-retirement income. It's, but it's not true that they're not saving, that they're not spending because they don't have the money. They, a lot of them do have the money. Um, we are not saying that the pension is adequate. The whole point of having a 9.5% super guarantee is so that people save a lot more than that. That is what the system has achieved. And, you know, even the people at the bottom of our distribution have got an income that's higher than the pension because they've got some super. Um, so I think it's... Certainly not the case that we're saying you should be condemned to the pension. It's just that when you say, oh, they should aspire to something higher that, than the pension, we say, yeah, sure, that's what we do. The 70% replacement rate is higher than the pension, pretty much right across the income distribution. The point, though, is that when you say they should aspire, you're saying they should aspire out of their own pockets. They should aspire out of their working age income and their working age consumption at a point in their lives when we know that they're under more financial stress than what they are in retirement. So if people want to save more for retirement, they can. The system allows them to do that. We're just saying we shouldn't compel them to 
and we shouldn't compel all of them to when they're reaching a living standard in retirement that's higher already than what they get while they're working. We support compulsory super. It shouldn't be zero. It should be nine and a half. That's the number that looks about right to achieve that balance between living standards in retirement and the living standards while working. We have also seen a political party recently delay those increases, you know, perhaps looking at the budgetary cost and looking at the trade-offs that are being made. So I think people support compulsory super. We do too. It's a question about if you can have too much of it. I've got a question that was submitted um, prior to tonight. Why does the superannuation sector have a glass jaw? Superannuation costs the economy $70 billion in tax subsidies and fees a year. Is it worth it? I think I kind of know your answer, but anyway... Um, so first of all, that's the 70 billion number's not right. It's about 35, you know. There are numbers banded around that say all the money that using these um, measures of tax expenditures that say all the money that um, if if would, would otherwise end up in the government's pocket, and that's not true. And that's why Treasury also releases other more realistic measures. So that's what we get in the Treasury expenditure statement. Tax expenditure not, statement. doesn't tell the whole picture. That's correct. And so if you do that then you end up with a number and you account for the interactions between the two as we have. Uh, it's about $35 billion a year. Anybody else? Sir? Uh, one of the things that we might think about correcting is that to a great extent the system has is a tax subsidy for inheritance. If you were addressing that, why, why don't we do something about annuities which address the a uh, problem that's on people of my age, our, our, our mind all the time. We don't know when we're going to die. So we all will save more just in case we live too long. So why have we made annuities so unattractive in the superannuation system? So we were, kind of, we were, we were discussing earlier the fact that um, people don't tend to draw down their retirement savings. And I think it's you know, it was emblematic of the debate about franking credits when people said, oh, you know, it's going to be 25% of my income. You know, it was obviously not a small amount of money they were going to lose, but one of the reasons it was such a large percentage is because the incomes were small and the way they were describing their income, even if they had substantial wealth, was, you know, it's the return of my investments and my money might be in a turn deposit or some of it might be in share. Well, obviously some was in shares. And so why I might have been losing $10,000 out of 40 or $7,000 out of 28 but their wealth might have been substantial. So there is a problem in Australia of people not drawing down on their retirement savings. The question is, why is that happening? How much of it is this concept of longevity risk? So how much of it is because, you know, there's the risk that you outlive your savings um, and therefore you're, you end up with much less. Um, you end up outspending your savings and then um, you, you end up on the age pension. We think it's part of the story but we don't think it's probably the full story. You know, a big part of it to us seems to be, from our read of the literature, is it's actually concerns about health and aged care costs and exogenous shocks. You know, something's going to go wrong. I say for a rainy day, I'm, I need money for aged care. Because you compare the kind of countries that have, you know, those aged care, that they have protections in longevity risk insurance, their drawdown rates aren't that different. Whereas the countries that don't have, um, you know, universal systems of health and aged care, it tends tends to have uh, much more precautionary saving, and in Australia we've kind of ended up with the worst of both worlds because we don't we don't we our government actually pays for all your health and aged care, all the majority of it. Um, but ten, people tend not to think that's the case because you ask people, okay, what do I have to pay for aged care? They say 
well, I need an aged care bond. It's 500 grand. But the reality is that aged care bond is a prepaid inheritance to your, your, your children because the, the government takes that money, puts it in, or the aged care facility takes that money, puts it in the bank, and it lives off the interest. And then when you're no longer in aged care, that money is passed on. Um, longevity risk component of this, I think, is perhaps a little, sometimes a bit overblown. I also think the way we've run the system in Australia is a bit messy. So the way we've done it, gone and said we're going to do it is SIPAs, so the Comprehensive Income Products for Retirement. Um, that was a, a recommendation of the Financial System Inquiry back in 2015. It says, let's set up a system where you're mandated to do this. Um, but I think what we should learn from the accumulation phase is that people have a lot of trouble focusing on the future. They have a lot of trouble comparing products. And accumulation products are very simple. It's get something that's got balanced returns and low fees. It's not very that hard. Like Scott Pate worked this out years ago with Barefoot Investor. Um, other, but we're not, we haven't caught on. We're then going to introduce the same sort of system where you say, here's a 100-page product disclosure statement. Go forth and pick a product. I just am very concerned that people will end up in, some people end up in very good products, perhaps offered by some of the people in this room. Others will end up in other products that don't look very good. And the thing with a SIPA, like an annuity, is that once you're in it, you can't get out. Like that's You've signed up to the fees and the, the income fee trade-off. And so I could imagine from a consumer protection standpoint, a lot of things going wrong if we went a long way down that path. I think we have to just be very careful about how you design that system and how much you rely on individuals making informed choices. Because annuity is a hard thing to understand, much harder than an account-based pension. Um, and I think it could go wrong if we're not if we don't do it very carefully. So James Crawford and I'm just a couple of observations. So the um, the one that shows the split across the countries between investment fees and administrative fees. And, and what I find interesting about this chart is that if you're looking at it, all the countries are paying more than about 25 basis points of their overall investments. It's either all administration or it's all fees, and the central. European and Eastern European countries seem to have a real problem with investment fees, and everybody else seems to have very high uh, mm. administrative fees. We seem to have a mixture of the two. And my second observation, which is just from working for um, global asset management firms, Australia is notorious for paying very low investment fees. So I'm intrigued as to why our investment fees are so high. Is this this small rump that you're talking about at the, at the tail? And so finally, my question um, is, if we look at the top 10, top 20 super funds that are out there, are they actually looking much better than the average and are much closer down towards the, the right-hand side of that chart? So what I do have to talk about on that is, in fact, you know, some of the work from the PC. So, you know, this is looking at uh, benchmark returns. Uh, so comparing funds uh, to the, kind, the benchmarks of what they're investing in. Um, so adjusting for different compositions of um, investments. And, you know, what we see is there's a big tail of underperformance at the bottom, right? So there's a bunch of funds that are doing really badly. Then there's a bunch of funds that are doing, you know, they're in the middle, and then there are some that are doing better than others. And some of that's going to be noise from year to year, although this is obviously over 12 years. So, you know, I think there are two parts to this story. One part of it is that there's some funds that probably shouldn't be in the system. Um, the hard thing there... It's about, it's a question is how you get them out. So the, the, the proposal that's often put forward is, you know, we have enhanced regulatory oversight. We basically get super fund. We basically get APRA um, to go really hard and ASIC to go really hard at funds that have poor performance. 
the trouble with that kind of approach is it's really hard to get a fund out of the business if you use that kind of approach because it says, oh, you haven't met these benchmarks, therefore you're out. But it's, a, it's an extinction level event for the fund. And so what are they going to do? They're going to lawyer up and you're going to have to challenge that through the court system in order to get, um, you know, the right, in, in order to, to enforce that. And at the end of the process, you might've got rid of a few. The best in show approach, I think the value of it, and you know, if it's 10 or if it's 20 or if it's 30, is it lops off the tail through some, essentially a tender process. And, you know, and as long as that tender process is well run, it's unlikely that it's going to be challenged in the court system in quite the same way. Because courts hate and judges hate just to knock strike someone out completely. Whereas a system that has a tender as its heart, you'll lop off that underperformance. And it won't you may not necessarily get all the best funds all the time, but you'll on average get very good funds and consumers are going to win from that process. As to your question about, you know, how much of it's the, the, the fees between the um Ad, admin versus investment fees. Look, to me, it strikes me as being a bit of both, I suppose. Um, you know, it's, it's issues across particular funds and the fees that they're charging. Any other questions? <laughs> Ross, what are you going to ask, though? <laughs> we can't uh, talk about the ASPA I'll standard. be fairly mild this time. Just in terms of the international comparisons, one of the complications is that in a number of other countries, they invest much more in bonds and the investment charges are quite low. The Future Fund, which is a very good fund, actually has quite high investment fees because they have a lot of uh, unlisted private equity, infrastructure, etc. Uh, you know, as you point out, what's important is the net return and a focus on fees can be misleading and the international comparisons are not like with like and the OECD reporting is partial. But I'm very much with you on the uh, getting rid of the tail, but a tender for 10, particularly with reversion to mean, is not necessarily a, the best process for getting rid of the underperformers. Uh, and if you have a look at comparisons over five and ten year periods, the top ten funds, even with long-term averages, move around a lot. So it's not an easy process, and I think that the PC report has underestimated some of the challenges involved. Thanks, Ross. So I think the, 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 the question I would ask would be, or the, or the comment I would have would be, you know, the PC, if you do the PC's process, it's probably not, are you going to pick the 10 best theoretical funds? And so the answer is, you may not. But the point is you're going to get rid of all the crap ones and you get rid, get rid of a lot of the, the sort of underperformance in the system that's hurting people. And, you know, when we're raising you know, questions about the, what the Productivity Commission's recommended. The key thing to keep in mind is what does it compare, look like compared to the alternatives? And if the alternative is to try to just lop off the bottom end through, you know, more robust regulatory arrangements by the regulators, I think you're really going to struggle. And then we might end up where we are today in five years' time having not achieved a great deal. So, and also if you're after, if you're thinking about informed choice in these kinds of markets... We're saying it's really hard for an investor, so for someone who really knows what they're doing, you know, people, we get people who are skilled, give them all the data and the information to work out who the right fund is. So how the system we have at the moment is individuals have to do that and they're defaulted randomly, um, almost at random via the awards process into funds, some of whom are good and some of whom are not. This is certainly better than that default system that we have today. So it takes us on the right path, even if it might not be the perfect, but I don't think we should let the perfect in this instance be better than the, the enemy of the good. Any, any, you, sir, sorry. 
Richard Lambert, an 81-year-old, self-funded independent retirees bracket. A lot of the self-funding was tax benefits. How does one put it? People in my age group and slightly younger grew up with parents who were, suffered the Depression and the Second World War and developed a saving culture. And we're, we're always terrified of spending more than we have, which make... Does this really account for the saving occurring even in the pension phase rather than a thing that all people, when they get to 65, will save still? I think possibly the age of the parents may well have a different... The, the circumstance in which the parents grew up and told the children what life is really about will have an effect on it. Thank, that, you, for that, the, thank you for the question. Um, you know, it's a good one. Like, one of the big questions in this debate is what happens in future when we have different cohorts coming in? And I think, you know, I think what's really interesting here is you may not see spending fall by this much as people age, but I think what's really striking is I can't see evidence for any evidence for why spending is going to rise as they age. You know, so you might move from a world where we're here to a world where we're kind of what we're presuming, uh, which is that you know spending remains constant in real terms through reti- your retirement years. Um, because the, you know if we think about the reasons why people aren't spending, it doesn't. So part of it might be precautionary saving, and maybe that disappears to a degree. You know, younger cohorts they may be more used to having a mortgage offset account and being able to dip in and out of their uh, their mortgage to sort of and have debt and are more comfortable with that. They may have higher aspirations uh, for what they want. But you know, one of the things that we're finding is a lot of the decline in spending is about you know people's physical abilities to con- enjoy the kinds of lives that they used to. So they mob- they become slightly less mobile. They can't do some of the same recreation as you enter your as people enter that later part of retirement, they're just not spending as much because it's quite hard to do. And I I would wonder how much that's going to change. You know, people are going to age, are going to live longer, but how much of that extra time in retirement is um, time where they're really active and mobile and how much is it time that, you know, they can't do a lot with their their lives. And I think the, the point I'm making here is that most of the industry is assuming that that spending rises a lot with age, um, but there's not a lot to base that on. There's nothing that we can see in the justification for why that yeah, there's a justification for why that could be so. Where there's a lot saying, well, it falls, so maybe we should just split the difference and say it stays the same. And that's a reasonable basis for doing retirement income calculations. And the reality is that younger Australians do have super, so they, that is making them safe. So, you know, would younger Australians have the same outcomes as what I showed earlier for retirees today? Would they have saved as much? Maybe not. Um, but that's what compulsory super allows them to do or forces them to do. I think, Anthony, did you have your hand up? Just in comment to the response to that, it's quite a nice paper, I think, by Nest in the UK about looking at different groups of retirees, showing that for almost all the groups the, they tend to drop spending. I think the exception is the people that with, 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 a, with expensive well, cars who like driving who then keep on driving until their 80s or 90s. Sorry, that's... To go back to slide 22, the the, the one of the costs, um, yeah, I think, you know, the the real problem... Sorry, I I think Ross's point about investment, random investment returns, explained the sort of... the the bulk of those changes. The real problems are those half dozen on the left-hand, bottom left-hand corner. And they, you know, I mean... I don't think Apple would have too much difficulty. I mean, those are conflicts of clearly conflicts of interest, excessive advice fees, um, and 
possibly a little bit of incompetence, but it's mainly it's mainly conflicts of interest, and they can drive those out. I would have thought quite easily. So, how often has have the courts struck down directors? How often does that actually happen? Versus how often does ASIC and ASIC maybe want it to happen? I, 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 I buy that, but I think that's that's actually just what the Royal Commission identified is is, is that type of issue. Mm. I, I, w- I would think we should try that before we do something more dramatic. I think what you maybe miss out on in the intervening period is, you know, high returns across the... Now, we, we clearly probably disagree on sort of how effective the PC would be, but I w- I would, I, what I would could be worried about is if you just drop those five at the bottom, one, you might not do it, and two, you're missing out on the ability to get more competition for people trying to get into that PC best-in-show list over time. Okay. The question I, I, I wanted to ask you, though, is... Um, I think the, refer- the idea that people actually save in retirement, I mean, that, I think that's some of our, our, our work that has shown that. Um, what, what I'm afraid we've missed is what happens if people are forced out of the workforce before the pension age? How much money do they lose then? And how much is the saving in retirement actually a consequence of trying to make up for the fact that they, 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 they pretty much scraped the barrel for those few years? I don't think that can be a really strong explanation of the behaviour we're seeing at the aggregate because of the other um, evidence we talked about before. So retirees are happier than working age Australians. They're, on average, they're less likely to experience financial stress. So, you know, if those things are true on average, it makes sense that if they're not spending, if they're not spending on average but they're saving, then that's probably not because something horrible has happened to them and they've, you know, they've had an injury and they've had to, they've had to cut out early. Um, it seems, seems to me that you could probably strike out that as an explanation for the overall story. But it, obviously, there's a lot of noise in these, you know, when you're representing these kind of um, these kind of projections, because there are people that will bounce up and down within that. But the point is that super isn't necessarily going to help them to to be better off in that way, you know, because if you do strike out early, you don't get access to your super, you're no longer contributing. That would, to me, would be an argument for why you would make sure you do more at the bottom. And the one thing we haven't talked about tonight, actually, is, you know, we we're really worried about home ownership. Um, we're worried about it because we think it's going to fall a lot. So we think over the next 40 years, the share of older Australians that own their own home is going to fall from, you know, something like so six-year-old, 65 plus here, 75% of Australians today. It could, if the current, this is just projecting for current trends and the fact that younger Australians are less likely to own homes and projecting that forward, then home ownership might be something that only half of retirees enjoy in future. Um, and then the risk is, well, what happens to the other half? And then you're probably not in a world of saying, well, we need more compulsory super to help them. You want something that helps them if they find themselves in trouble, and that's boosting rent assistance by 40%, uh, which would cost $1.2 billion for everyone or $300 million just for retirees would be something we think should be the priority because that's where the problems are. Poverty overall in retirement is not that high, but it's incredibly high amongst those that rent. And it's the best predictor of whether you're in trouble in old age or not. Amara Hakani from Milliman. Um, just a, a comment and a question. Uh, the first comment is we've done some extensive work on um, spending profiles, as you, some of you in the room would know. I think um, one of the interesting comments to make about some of the um, things that have come up is certainly everything that we've seen about spending and later in life um, definitely does show a decline. I think one of the things that we're finding a gap in and that's something that maybe globally we're starting to look at is the behavioural difference. So it's not necessarily whether or not you're financially able 
or willing to spend later in years, but the fact that you're actually more content, there's less necessarily that you want to do um, rather than the earlier years. So I think that over the next period of research that we end up doing across the industry and um, related fields that we start to explore the behavioural impacts of, of the fact that we know retirement isn't a single period of time, it's a you know multiple periods of time um, in someone's life and how that comes across from a behavioural standpoint in the spending. So it's a lot more than the numbers, I think. Um, question for you, though, um, as a millennial, um, as a millennial that's just bought a house, actually, and still reeling from it, um, we've, we've talked extensively in the last few years in retirement income circles about the impact of renting. I know Ross has been looking at a retirement standard that factors in renting, all that kind of stuff. Um, What's of interest to me personally is the notion that what we have seen is that um, retirees have gone into um, retire or pre-retirees go into retirement with um, using some of their super to pay off debt. I'm curious to know what your thought might be about the fact that people of my generation might have enough super at the end to maybe be buying houses with cash. Now, it depends. There's a lot of factors at play there. But what's of note to me is we may be using super very differently 30, 40 years from now than we might be now. So you're, you're saying that people <laughs> will have debt at retirement and they want to pay that off? No, so for the people that are renting that are not home own, homeowners, that they may or may not have. I mean, the work that certainly I did with this man <laughs> a couple of years ago on um, – how much wealth we're going into retirement, right? I mean, the current stats are if as a couple you have half a million dollars or close to, by the time we're retiring with super, we'll have a lot more super than people realise we will. Um, some people may be in a position to actually buy a home, depending, obviously, it might not be in a Sydney, but there might be scenarios at play there where uh, a certain cohort of people may actually use their super to buy a place with, in effect, with cash, as opposed to the people going into retirement now that are paying off debt. I'm curious to know what you think about that. It's a really interesting question. Um, I think it really depends where you're trying to buy uh, because, you know, returns to housing have been very strong in part because you use debt to leverage yourself up on the way, right? So you, you borrow 10 15 20%, 5% now just under um, the government's new deposit um, saver scheme and then the government will front the lender's mortgage insurance for you. I would be surprised if we got to retirement in future and the kinds of people who can't afford to buy a house while they're working would then be able to afford one with their super in retirement. I think that's the real question. So, you know, we know that home ownership is falling really fast amongst poorer Australians. We also know that when you survey them, they really still want to buy a house. Like that is still seen as part of the Australian dream. The rates of aspiration for home ownership have very have changed very little across generations. And these guys don't seem to not be buying houses because they don't want to. It's because they can't afford to. These are also the people who might get to retirement. And, you know, you might be right in the sense that they'll get to retirement and say, well, I've got a higher living standard now than what I thought I was going to get. Um, I'll use some super to buy a house. I just don't know if it'll be enough, particularly if they're in anywhere like Melbourne and Sydney. It might be enough to get somewhere, you know, in a, in a country town um, where prices today are, say, 200000 and in future they'll be a bit more, but so are you super. So I think that'll be a, 
a relatively it'll be an interesting phenomenon to see, but I would have thought it's not going to solve problems of home ownership because the cohort that's going to benefit from that uh, are probably people who might most people who would want to buy a house at retirement and can afford to will have probably bought one already. They'll just have a big debt that they'll probably just pay off using their super. Hello. Yes, go ahead, Mr. Cooper. Uh, Jeremy Cooper from Challenger. I just thought I'd, I'd briefly make a few observations about the best in show, and I promise not to take up too much time because it's 10 past 7 already, but uh, Y10, um, the um, conflicts of interest and, you know, where would you find people with such wisdom uh, who weren't either ignorant or conflicted in the system to, to make... Uh, make this decision you would almost every time I hear people speak about this although they would swear on a pack of bibles that they're not doing this they're looking at past performance they might look at a whole bunch of fuzzy uh, uh, measures of either subjective or uh, objective but they're really looking at how the things performed now if you're going there I think you probably need 20 years worth of, of high quality performance data we, we don't have that I also then think that we're forgetting that investing is, is just really about a, a big dispersion of returns. And if you believe at all that it's partly a zero-sum game, who's the Australian super system as we go up to the top quartile? We've got these 10 super fantastic investors. Who are we going to be taking these gains from? Um, we seem to be assuming that you can have an active and compulsory and very vast saving system like we've got and move it up into the top quartile over, a, we're going to be all winners over a 40-year savings period. And that, that, simply, that simply can't mathematically be the case. There are going to be winners and losers, and you would want to minimise that as much as you could, but I think we're, um, we're just kidding ourselves if we think we can pick these 10 funds that are they're going to do better than everybody else. I, th I think also we haven't looked at the um, behavioural issues. So, what 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 happens if you fund nine? Um, do you you know do you or fund? You've just been popped into fund eleven. Uh, there are all sorts of funny things that we don't know about that are that are going to happen. And then, if you're just a, an ordinary member and you see your fund has suddenly been popped from seven to fourteen or something, well, what are you going to do? And I think the answer is we just don't know. And to to make such a a huge decision um, without all the, the sort of backup research and data is really unwise in my, bo my book. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, they, they are uh, quite interesting comments. So let me take them one at a time. So, look, I do think you could find, you know, five people who would be relevantly independent enough that could do this job for you. Um, I'd be surprised if you couldn't find that across Australia and the kind of benchmarking that you're looking at doing. Um, you know, we, you might disagree, but I think you could probably find someone who could do that. The question is to the zero-sum game. Well, look, partly it's not just about domestic, right? So you're not just, you're not just looking at the domestic market. People are investing abroad. Um, so that's one. Two, you know, a lot of the underperformance seems to be because of fees as much as returns. So you bring those fees down. That is a, that's not a zero-sum game. That is genuinely rent that's being extracted that you would be able to put back in the hand in the pockets of Australians. Um, I think that would make quite a big difference in the long run, and we do appear to be a bit of an outlier on fees, even accounting for questions like the, the asset mix that we're in and the fact there's maybe some more unlisted stuff that costs you a bit more to run. Well, well so I think what, what I'm, I suppose I'm struggling with uh, is 
you know, what else will get you to that outcome that's not best in show? Because the industry is putting on the table, oh, we just lop off the bottom. That's the, my understanding of where a lot of the advocacy has gone so far. Um, I'm sure there are others that have other ideas, but it still looks like the best horse we've got in the race at the moment, um, unless there's something else that would do it more efficiently and more effectively. Because I think just lopping off the bottom won't get you. It might You might manage to get rid of the bottom five, but I don't know if that's true. Uh, because of the legal issues I raised before. And that itself doesn't drive the kind of competition, the sort of wholesale market competition about people trying to get onto that best in show list in the first place. Thirdly, though, on the behavioural issues, I think the very that the PC did not do enough work on is, you know, if you're going to propose this, before someone goes and introduces it, you've got to understand and you've got to game through as much as possible, test the market design, the micro market design really cleanly and cleverly, and, you know, test it with a whole bunch of people, see how they respond, run experiments, all that kind of stuff. That's the work that I haven't seen the PC do. And, you you know, if, if a government was going to pick up on this idea, that's what you would have to do to make it work. Because, you know, that's where the devil will be in the detail. It is a big change to the system. And you'd want to test that micro design really clearly before you got there. So, Jeremy, just two quick comments. And I think it's probably, that's probably about time would be, I don't know if there's that big a difference between a bunch of grand poobars uh, within the regulator and the grunt of bunch of grand poobars within um, an agency or an institution set up to choose that 10 or 20 or 30. Uh, secondly, you know, it could be more. Like, the, the, the number is kind of arbitrary. The number, in fact, the reason why you pick a small number is to make it easier. If you're doing something where, you know, it makes it easier for the regulator to actually be inside those funds and understand what's going on and check conduct. It makes it easier to regulate along the way once you've chosen the 10 because you have given them an elephant stamp. And so you want to make sure that they then do their job and that they nothing untoward happens. If you make it 20 or 30 or 40, um, which means there's fewer losers in the industry, there's more players that are potentially in that market, um, it makes it harder to regulate, regulate them in that way. Um, really intensively once you've picked them because they're getting an enormous amount of the default market, right? And then I think the third point is I'm not sure, you know, when you talk about this process where you raise the stakes and the regulator knocks them off, I think that's the problem is that the regulator won't be able to knock them off. So the legal instrument of of getting them out, I think is where you'll run into trouble is it'll be really hard to get them to because they'll lawyer up, they'll go through the courts. It's a life or death decision for the fund. If you, I started by um, worrying about not being able to write about franking credits anymore, but picking grand poobars and uh, ten funds is going to keep me busy for so long. It's not even funny. Um, thanks to everyone for coming, Ben. Thank you for all of your your expertise and uh, insights. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.